Today I want to talk about the infilling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to start out today in John chapter 14, if you want to turn there in your Bible. When I was growing up Lutheran, we had confirmation classes. And about halfway through confirmation classes, we noticed that several of our classmates went missing. And we thought, you know, maybe they had something going on, they weren't there. And then week after week, we saw that they still weren't there. And we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, where did they go? I mean, St. Mary's is a pretty big church. It had about 800 people in it in Kenosha. And, you know, but still, some of these kids were prominent people. One of them was the, one of the uh, pastor's kids who just wasn't suddenly showing up to confirmation class. So we noticed, and the uh, guy teaching us confirmation that year was one of the associate pastors. He was a youth pastor. And so we asked him, we're like, you know, Pastor Dan, where in the heck did all of these uh, kids go? You know, how come, they, how come they're not coming anymore? And he kind of rolled his eye and he kind of looked down at the ground and he said, he goes, well, what happened is a whole bunch of them got roped into going to a different church and now they're going to that crazy church over there on 60th and Pershing and... You know, we're trying to get them back, but they said they don't want to come back, that they've they found Jesus and, and you know, they want to be over there and they don't want to come back. And, and he, he, then he's like, you know, I don't want you guys be, to be anything having to do with them. He goes, those people are crazy. I mean, they jump around and they dance during worship and they sing really, really loud and they even act like they, they talk in a different language sometimes. He goes, it's a cult. It's dangerous. Stay away from it. And I knew this church. I mean, they had, had just had this huge carnival and, and rides and everything, and I guess that's what um, these kids attended, and they all gave their hearts to Christ, and they were now attending First Assembly of God in Kenosha at that time. And it was the first experience I'd, I had ever really heard of the Holy Spirit outside of our confirmation class, or, and... Um, and knowing about the things of the Spirit. And Pastor Dan didn't really want to talk about it that much more. He just told us, you know, stay away from that. And so when I came into the Pentecostal church, it was a big kind of culture shift in the way that I looked at the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is the person, the ministry, and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're going to be starting off in John chapter 14, in verse 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. During his last meeting with the disciples, Jesus introduces them to the third person of the Godhead, or the Trinity. The fact that God is spirit was not new to the disciples. They all knew that. The Torah repeats that over and over again. But the fact that the Holy Spirit was a separate person within this triune Godhead was a completely new idea to them. Jesus really doesn't explain it deeply, but he does a quick introduction into the purpose and ministry that the Holy Spirit will perform after his death and resurrection. And that's, that's the, the background behind what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just take 
this time that we have left this morning and introduce us in a new way to your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you just remove any false preconceptions that we have and let us see what your word says about the Holy Spirit and his ministry in this church and in our lives. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So if you've been following the series, you know that we've discussed the fall of humanity and everything that is entailed on both the physical and earthly level and even in the spiritual level. For just a quick review, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. They are created as spiritual beings that inhabit a physical body. Part of the image of God that was within their spirits is that they are very intimately connected with the spirit of their creator. Or in our New Testament understanding, the Holy Spirit was living in them and was upon them. This gave them the power and the knowledge and all the what was necessary for them to serve as God's regents or, or commanders, if you will, over earth and over creation. Remember that God gave dominion over Adam, and he needed all the help of God to be able to do that. Now, in Adam and Eve's sin, you remember the first thing they noticed after they had sinned, after they had bitten that forbidden fruit, was that they noticed they were naked. Now, throughout the Renaissance, throughout history, people have always painted Adam and Eve with little fig um, leaves covering the parts of their body that we would consider to be private and, and not worthy to look at, or, or not, uh, excuse me, appropriate to look at. They saw their physical nakedness as sinful or embarrassing. But that's not what Genesis chapter 3 is meaning to convey. What it meant is that for the first time since they were created, they saw things only through their physical eyes, that something had been taken away. The nakedness that they felt was the Holy Spirit leaving them and lifting off from them, and they were embarrassed and ashamed. In Bible history since the fall and until Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit was largely invisible in the lives of believers. When you look through the whole Old Testament, you didn't talk about the Spirit of God really living within a person. Occasionally, the Holy Spirit would make kind of a surprise guest appearance, for lack of a better word, and he would fall upon a king or he would fall upon a prophet or he would fall upon some kind of leader and they would prophesy or speak in tongues as evidence that the Holy Spirit was with them. Now fast forward to John chapter 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. The scene here is after the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the grave. The disciples are in hiding. They're afraid of the Romans. They're afraid of the Pharisees because they're hunting down the disciples because they think they've stolen the body of Jesus. So they have a huge... Um, movement going out into the community to find these people and make them turn over the body of Jesus so they can prove that he was crucified and dead. And it specifically says here in John 20 that the doors are barred shut, but then suddenly Jesus appears in the room. Let's read the account in John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
After he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Verse 22, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people miss these last ten words when they develop their beliefs concerning the Holy Spirit. There are those in Christianity, particularly in the older kind of churches, who believe that the miraculous movements of the Holy Spirit and all those miracles, they died with the first century church. That God doesn't move that way anymore. They would say, they look at, at John chapter um, 20, verse 22, and say that, well, this was John describing Acts chapter 2 in a different way. But that's not what is happening here. You see, Jesus came to restore that which had been lost. Now, we talked about just a moment ago in, John or in uh, Genesis chapter 3 that in the Garden of Eden, there was two ways the Holy Spirit was interacting with Adam and Eve. First, he was inside of them. God's Spirit was or our spirit was made to be intimately connected at all times with God's spirit. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that connection was broken. We had this a direct, high-speed, unfaltering connection to the divine, which had been broken at that point when sin entered the world. And figuratively speaking, our power cord has just been unplugged and flopping ever since. And what Jesus was doing here is he's taking that power cord, just like this one. You know, our, our power cord has just been kind of sitting here flopping around for centuries. Jesus took that power cord and did that to it. Plugged us back in to the divine power that we um, need in order to survive and thrive in the spiritual realm. So Jesus has reconnected us to the divine presence. After satisfying God's justice and giving us a way out of eternal punishment, this is the single most important and meaningful result of the cross, is that you and I can have a close, intimate relationship with Almighty God through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's what John 20 is showing us. The Holy Spirit returning to those who would believe in the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's a birthright. It's a privilege of every Christian. And it's the start of our eternal life with God when we believe. And that is the gospel message. Now flip a few pages over to Acts chapter 1. Right before Jesus ascends to heaven... He gives his disciples some final instructions. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Acts 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, what effect is this Holy Spirit coming upon you? What, what's this power for? Well, Jesus goes right in and tells us in the last part of verse 8. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Keep your fingers there in your Bible because we're going to go to the next chapter of Acts in a moment. But before you go there, I want to give you some important perspective in how you read and understand the Bible after Jesus rises from the grave. According to Jesus' own words, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the Father God has given all authority to Jesus Christ. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. In other words, it's like God the Father kind of stood back and said, Jesus, it's all yours now. Kind of the same way that God the Father stood back and said, Adam, this is all yours now, until Adam messed up. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam, or the second man, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-48. As God's appointed ruler, Jesus is calling all the shots now. Now how this works within the Trinity, with all of them being God and co-equal and majesty and all that, how that all works, no idea. We just accept it by faith. I can't explain it any further, just like I can't really even explain the Trinity even further. It's something that we accept by faith. So Jesus, being in command now, has set the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is to help us be witnesses. Everything we do as Christians, everything we do, everything we attribute as being led by the Holy Spirit has to line up with this mandate when it comes to the Holy Spirit coming upon us. And with that in mind, let's le read the favorite verse of any Pentecostal church. And that is in Acts chapter 2. That says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the, the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, a couple questions that's going to help us clarify what is happening here. First question, how did the Holy Spirit come down in the upper room? Did the fire just fall from the ceiling and, and waft on the floor and spread out that way? No. It said that the fire came down each, on each individual that was there. It shows that God has a personal relationship with each and every person here. It is not going to be the same for me as it is maybe for Audrey. It's not going to be the same for everyone. It doesn't mean that the rules change. It doesn't mean that, that the way we approach God changes. But just as a parent has different relationships with all of their children, so God has a slightly different relationship, expectation, and desire for, for our lives that's going to be different from the person sitting next to you. The second question, how do, we, or how do you know that the Spirit of God came upon a person in the Old Testament. Well, if you look at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, when the Holy Spirit came upon the person, what happened? They prophesied, right? Even Saul prophesied, and he wasn't even really saved. 
The Spirit of God coming upon a person would cause them to have some type of ecstatic speech come out of them, and they would be, it would be seen by everyone, and it would be very recognizable what God was doing in their lives. They prophesied, or as we call it in the New Testament church, they spoke in tongues. And I point this out to say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person today, they can prophesy, and they can speak in tongues. We shouldn't discount that phenomenon for happening today. Within our fellowship, the Assemblies of God, we say that it is the initial physical evidence of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. Saying that, I want to give just a little bit of caution here when we're saying that it's the only physical evidence or only evidence of, a per, of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. As a pastor, this is a church I got saved in, Pentecostal Church, Assemblies of God. I've been around the block a few times, and I've been around in leadership for most of my Christian life. So I want to be a little careful about saying that it is the only evidence of a person being filled with God's Spirit is them speaking in tongues. One example I'll give, I was working at a large Christian gathering filled with national-level speakers, national-level worship leaders, and I was doing security, walking around the outside of the thing, and a well-known worship leader stepped out um, I, just, I just heard him leading worship like five seconds before he walked out, speaking in tongues, praising God, everything. Comes back out, dragging one of his, one of his um, singers, starts yelling, screaming, cussing her up one side and down the other. And after she starts crying, he just leaves her there, walks back in, and starts speaking in tongues again. That's not the way it should be. And that's why I give this caution about relying on this one subjective gift to determine the godliness of a person. I say this because there are other religions that practice speaking in tongues. Voodoo, Samnia, other South American cultish beliefs, they all speak in tongues. If you go down to New Orleans during Fat Tuesday... They're all dancing and they're all speaking in tongues and they're all worshiping the great flying pumpkin or something. They are not worshiping God. The devil can counterfeit this gift of God. So when we use just that to determine somebody's spirituality, I think we wander into a wrong path. So don't let the initial physical evidences like tongues and prophecy be that only evidence. For me, the true evidence of a person that has been baptized, filled, and has the Holy Spirit upon them will be a changed life. Amen. It's going to be the love of God pouring out through that other person. The love of God flowing through a person and that fire to see Jesus' gospel spread out with the works of the Holy Spirit is going to be worth more than a thousand words spoken in an unknown tongue. So I would say, should a believer in Christ speak in tongues? I would say, yes. Paul tells us, desire earnestly the gifts of the Spirit. Saying that, God gives out the Spirit as he sees fit and the gifts as he sees fit. And the true evidence of the infilling and the outpouring is found in Galatians 
5, 22 and 23, which we'll read in a moment. In this section of the Bible, Paul is instructing the Galatians who waffle back and forth between the law and the freedom we have in Christ, and he tells them first what the fruit of the flesh looks like, and then tells them what a person who is led and governed by the Holy Spirit looks like. Paul uses the illustration of fruit to describe these attributes because the health of the fruit is directly related to the vine or tree that it's connected to. And the same thing goes for us as people. The evidence of our Christian lives is directly related to who and what we are connected to spiritually. The fruit of the Spirit looks like this in Galatians 5.22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's true Christianity. The fruit of the Spirit showing through the action of those who claim to be Christ's followers. So I would say, as your pastor, eagerly desire the Spirit. Eagerly desire His gifts. But keep your heart tender before God so that the fruit of those gifts brings glory to Jesus and his mission here on earth. That's the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to look briefly at the role of the Holy Spirit within the church. I say briefly because we have a teaching coming up on that in the next few weeks called The Church and Its Ministry, where I'll go more into depth about this. So we're going to be doing a quick survey through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, if you want to follow along. Now, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being tongues of fire individually resting on each person, it doesn't mean that we do life and do ministry independent from one another. And you see that here in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, when it says that, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Your gifting of the Holy Spirit was not given to make you happy. It isn't given to fulfill you. It is given to serve Christ within the community of the local church. It is a gifting to serve the body of Christ and its mission here on earth. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, Just as a body, though one has many parts... But all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Every single person here today, or those who listen to the podcast, has a mission from God to fulfill in their life. Some of it may be out front and seen by everybody. Some of it may be in the background and seen by nobody but God. But each one of you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if you are faithful to that gifting and that mission that he has given to you. Jump forward to 1 Corinthians 14, and we have some basic instructions of how the gifts of the Spirit are to be managed within the church service. 
I encourage you to read that on your own. We're going to be, again, going to be hitting that in a couple weeks. But the basic principle is that when we meet together as a church body, we do everything in order and do it in a way that brings God glory and not the person using the gifts. I say give God the glory because sometimes a person's gifting can get in the way of what is going on in the church service. We had a woman once who felt she was a newer, a newer Christian. She had, she had some issues, to put it gently. She decided that God wanted her to speak a message in the middle of the pastor's sermon. So she walked up, and the pastor's walking across. He's preaching, he's bringing it and everything. And she, like, she starts walking behind him and tapping him on the shoulder and saying she needs to talk. Well, the pastor said, just have a seat. We'll talk about it after service. She goes, no, God's telling me to do it right now. So she walks over to the worship leader's microphone and starts speaking into the microphone. And the pastor says, you're out of order. You know, you're, you're distracting from what the Spirit is doing here and bringing attention to yourself. And you never, ever want to do that as a spiritual leader. And eventually, we had to go down as ushers and escort her out of the the, <laughs> the sanctuary and have a talk with her about proper order and proper um, times of doing things. So we want to make sure that our gifting is always bringing glory to God and not ourselves. And the way we do this is to focus, is to notice that the chapter 12 focusing on the individual gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit and chapter 14 and how we govern those within a church service, right in the middle of all that is chapter 13. Chapter 13 tells us the heart and attitude that we should approach these gifts with and how, to, and how we allow them to move in our lives. Paul talks about this. He talks about speaking in tongues in particular and spiritual gifts in general in 1 Corinthians 13. And as he says this, he gives us what our heart should be um, when we exercise these gifts. And I'm going to read chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give all over my body to hardship that I might boast, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things behind me. 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. For now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I is fully known. And now these three, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Throughout this chapter that we just read, the Greek word for love is agape. Agape is the God-centered, selfless, sacrificial love that Jesus showed every one of us when he went to the cross to die for our sins. And if we are claiming that the Spirit of God rests within us and upon us, then this is the kind of love we should be showing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have reconnected us to a high-speed internet connection with you, Lord. That we can know your heart, we can know your mind, we can know your plans through time spent with you, through listening to your voice, through reading your word, and through the discipline of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you, Lord, you didn't just leave us here and, and having us swim in an ocean of doubt, but you have connected us to the source of very, of all truth, Lord. So, Father, we just ask, Lord, that you help us to be a people of the Spirit today. That you would help us to allow your Holy Spirit to move into our hearts, to push out everything that does not please you, and that you would allow your holy that we would allow your holy spirit to come upon us in power so that we can be your witnesses in every place you have us go in this coming week and coming months father let us be a people of the spirit lord jesus i thank you i thank you and i bless your people now in jesus name amen